Hi, this is Gerd Leonhardt, Futurist. I could talk about that for quite some time, but there are some general trends that we're seeing happening. For example, uh, the move to uh, decarbonization of our society, which is a uh, total priority now. Um, and people are realizing that this is also an amazing business, right? So decarbonization means, for example, different way of keeping animals, or uh, as some people are already experimenting with artificial meat, you know, meat from the lab, which is not really artificial, actually. It's, it is from a cow, but it's grown in the lab. Uh, not, it's, I, I tasted it the other day. It's actually okay, right? Uh, <laughs> and it's about $2,000 a pound, you know, it's a little bit priced out right now. But uh, just as one example, you know, uh, Richard Branson and Bill Gates have invested, and they're saying in 10 years, the, the meat from the lab will be one-tenth of the price of regular meat and without any environmental side effects and cleaner organic you could even say <laughs> so that's just one example of what's happening vertical farming clearly that is the future especially in places that are difficult to farm right now vertical farming is way too expensive but like anything else you know the first uh, the first iphone prototype was uh, if you had sold it would have been two hundred thousand dollars and now you can get one for 700 and electric cars are going in price from $100,000 to $10,000. And the same is going to happen with vertical farming. Uh, and then generally speaking, of course, when it's about food, it's quite clear that the future is vegetarian. Uh, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, <laughs> I have to say, but try to eat less meat. But it's quite clear that as we're heading towards a population of, you know, maybe 10, 11 billion, less than we had anticipated. Uh, we're going to have to solve the protein problem, and that's not going to be solved with pork and grown in, in, in Brazil. <laughs> you know? So, um, I would say basically the answer for the future of food are pretty much contained in technology that we already have. Not even touching on genetic engineering, which is a difficult topic, but just using technology to make it more efficient. Uh, yes, and then we're going to have all kinds of uh, you know, apart from the ag tech, you know, the agriculture technology that we're getting, we're going to go back to permaculture, clearly, also organic foods, different way of raising animals, like I was saying before. We can solve the food problem uh, and we can have better food, but it's going to take some pretty tough decisions as to, you know, for example, stop subsidizing the mass production of, uh, of livestock things like that. So it's a, it, this is a major change. I, I think it's going to take longer than, say, energy uh, because of our habits. But now if you look at a world of roughly 11 billion people, continuing as we are is just not an option <laughs> for food. And, and, and apart from food, we're also going to solve water. You know, this is the other thing that's happening right now, is that uh, desalination is becoming a lot cheaper and we're going to use different technologies to produce water in, in remote places. So this is all just a question of shifting the money, you know, away from the old patterns to the new patterns. And now you have politicians making that move in many countries like New Zealand. Uh, even America, people are discussing what's going to happen to the cattle industry and, the, the, and you know, it's... So yeah, there's lots of good things happening. I have, I'm quite optimistic. Yeah, this is a, obviously a difficult discussion, but you know, clearly uh, the, the, uh, the stats are showing that we're going to have roughly 40% of the world will be from Africa in 30 years. You know, that, as one of the side effects of all these things that are happening with population, because they have a lot more kids and when they get more healthy and better water and food, then of course they have a lot more people. The amount of young people is, is the highest amount, uh, proportionally speaking, than any other continent. Right? 
Uh, and as people are improving and rising a little bit out of poverty, then over time, roughly 30, 40 years, you know, the statistics are quite clear, the world will be dominated by Asia and by Africa <laughs> in terms of population. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I don't really think that population growth is the number one problem. Um, as we are discovering technology, how to deal with more people and to live better and healthier and in, in a sort of people-planet environment. And of course, you know, there are people saying that we're going to be a multi-planetary species. Now, now we're getting really out there, right? Uh, but yeah, that is not, un, that is not impossible. I would say roughly 30, 40, 50 years before we have other options for, you know, that sounds truly crazy, right? But yeah. So I, I think overpopulation is an issue, but not as big as the Club of Rome said, you know, originally. Uh, so uh, lots of, and of course, education clearly makes a difference in people's life and they make different decisions, right? Uh, because they are more educated. And of course, we're going to see the trend is not to move into the city as much. Uh, that's going to be true for the next 10 years, probably. Uh, people are still moving to the city, especially in, in Africa and many in Asia. But uh, after that, we're going to have enough technology to do whatever you want to do in terms of work, you know, working in the cloud <laughs> remotely, uh, pretty much from anywhere. So that's also going to change the structure of cities, which means cities will be more about social things, meeting, culture, opportunities, and most cars will go away in cities. Right? Because, you know, when we have car sharing, electric cars, autonomous vehicles, we don't need to own all these cars. So in many cities, that's going to unlock 30% of real estate and parking. Imagine what could happen with that. Right? And Asia will be the leader for that, clearly. Yeah. So that, that's going to be roughly 10 years until we see that happening. Yeah, I read as widely and as, as deeply as I can. You know, my Kindle queue has about 264 books in it or something. Uh, if you go to my website, featurewithgert.com, there is under media, there's a tab that says the books I'm reading. So there's, there's a whole list there, right? Um, but, uh, I, but I read very widely. So for example, one uh, latest book I'm reading with great relish is Bill Gates on climate change. Just came out last week. Uh, it's one of the only positive books about climate change. Uh, and then there's Christina Figuera, who used to run the UN climate change panel, called The World We Choose. You know, my, my company, the Futures Agency, there's 47 of us in different countries doing different domains for future work and, and we help each other get up to speed. But, you know, in the end, my job isn't to know everything. Uh, my job is about, mostly about imagination, you know, being able to imagine what it could be. Because, you know, the, the way I look at it, if, you, if you're looking for facts and logic uh, and research reports, you can do all of that reading, it's good, right? But in the end, you're going to have to unfold a vision of what is important to you. As I keep saying to people, the future is not about what is going to happen. That's kind of a passive look, right? The, the, the future is about what we want. Right? This, is, this is the number one question. It's not about what can happen. Anything can happen. I mean, in 10 years, you can probably upload your brain to the internet, right? Uh, and you can, you can download a plugin for Korean. Yeah. Uh, if you can do that, right? I mean, that's maybe 20 years away. But the question is, do we want that? And what kind of world do we want to live in? And what's going to happen to what makes us human, which is to not be a machine? You know? So we're going to make those choices, and the governments and the people and, and us, we will make those choices, and it will define the future for, for worse or for better. Right? If you go to Goodreads, you know, that's the Amazon website that reviews books, 
goodreads.com. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a user on Goodreads and lots of stuff that I read is posted there with quotes and everything. Uh, my favorite podcasts are The Economist. They have a great series of uh, you know, concise, short podcasts uh, that I listen to a lot. And the New York Times podcasts are great as well. The Guardian. Um, but I try to look at different sources from all over the world you know, so I can get a picture that's more rounded. But yeah, of course, this is the number one problem is you can't know everything about everything. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, I use the Bill Gates rule and I, I tell teachers a lot about this. Uh, the Bill Gates rule says five hours a week should be spent on learning the future. Okay. So that should be reading stuff you, don't, you haven't never thought about, uh, listening to the podcast, watching stuff, good, good uh, documentation and stuff on YouTube or going to a conference. But basically five hours a week and he calls it the compound rate of return on learning. Right? Especially like, like savings in the bank, you know. You save a little, it goes on like this, it just grows a little bit. But you save a little bit more, it goes like this, right? And after 30 years of good saving, you end up with 3x, right? And it's the same with the one hour rule. So one hour per day you spend in the future, then after, after a couple of years your curve goes like this. Right? Um, and as soon as you do that, then you're kind of future-proof because, yeah, you're going to find a good re response uh, because of all the stuff you've looked at. A better way of putting it would be uh, too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. Right? Uh, and this goes for food, alcohol, uh, smoking, it goes for, you know, for everything that's little, that can be fun, but if we do too much of it, then we're in trouble. Right? Um, and digital obesity is the concept of saying, well, if we eat too much information and we overload our brain, then we are, we are treating our brain like a computer, you know, like the more input, the better. Right? But that's not how we work. You know? We don't work like a machine that gets, you know, a, a trillion data feeds and then we find a better solution. You know, we are, we are much more organic than that. So it's very important to cut back on, on the intake and also to think about what exactly you're taking in. You know the old saying, you are what you eat, right? Uh, I always say you are what you read, <laughs> right? And you are what you watch. So you spend your time watching lots of Netflix disaster shows, you know, you, you start thinking about the world as being a disaster, right? Uh, and it's the strangest thing, you know, when you're, when you're talking about uh, what we're consuming online, um, Barbara Hubbard, who was a, a good friend of Buckminster Fuller, favorite futurist of mine, he sa she said, as we see our future, so we act, and as we act, so we become. Right. So therefore, um, I would say we have to be careful about um, getting too uh, fat in our heads, so to speak, with all that input, you know, and we filter out the stuff that's not good, you know, so we should be much more rigorous on you know, what we spend time on. Um, and I think this is just a habit, you know, that after a while you, you can resist the temptation to eat more. Yeah. Well, when I was a musician, I lived in Las Vegas for a year and I, uh, I played at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas and I had the, uh, the, the hands-on opportunity to watch how people eat that are paying $10 for a flat rate buffet that's about 200 meters long, right? So you can imagine what you look like if you, if you do that for a year. Right? Uh, and I think it's the same as happening now with online uh, digital activities. You know, we think that more information is better or more noise is better. 
but you know the reality is that it's just not human. We're not made to receive constant input on the data level, on the intellectual level. We're actually the opposite. You know, our main input is emotional. And this is why teaching is so important. Because the main input isn't the data you provide, you know, or the knowledge or you know the information or the nuts and bolts. It's everything but that, really. <laughs> and that's very important to remember. This is why I think teaching has a great future using the tools that we're getting, right? because this is what we do. You know, humans are about engagement, experiences, emotions, relationships. We're not at all about you know, getting data feeds and then saying, oh yes, you know, that's not how we think about this. You know, when you think about your wife or your husband, you don't go back to your brain and you, you, you take out a JPEG and then you say, oh, that's her. Right? This is not what we do. This is what computers do. Right? It's completely like binary. Right? So we have to be very careful about putting too many images in our brain because, the, because then we're getting confused about what's what. Yeah, we don't really live in an information age anymore. That, that age is closing. You know, if, if you can see, I mean, it's, we're very close to the place to where I can go anywhere, like on my wristwatch, and I can say, you know, show me uh, the, how Korea does with, with English language uh, training, how many people graduate, what their skills are, as opposed to Taiwan and New Zealand, and it will just, it will just answer me, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, and this is basically uh, uh, the lowest level of data and knowledge is going to be available like this, and very well done, too. Right? Um, there's a new uh, artificial intelligence engine it's called Talk to Anyone. Uh, it's not really public, but you can see it on YouTube. Uh, there's a couple examples. And there you can go in and say, I want to talk to Elon Musk about, you know, why should we go to space? And you type in a message and Elon answers. Right? Well, the AI that pretends to be Elon, right? But, but you can talk to... Um, you can talk to uh, you know, uh, under Segovia, if you want, you know, dead people, right? And they will give you an answer that is exactly like they thought. So, so really what's happening is that we're moving into the age of experience, you know, the experience economy, and what I call the new human renaissance. Now, it sounds strange when we think about what's going on around us now, but in, but in the 15th century, right, we had Leonardo da Vinci, who basically reprogrammed the entire society by saying, you know, religion and dogma and stuff, that, that's all okay, but really in the end this is about human unfolding, right? And out of that we had the Renaissance and then the Reformation, right? And modern society as we know it. Now we're entering that same phase in the next 10, ten years where we are saying, you know, technology is great and efficiency is great, but really it's about us getting together with each other and, and of course the planet as well, right? So the human renaissance also means a recognition of our limitations and of our needs. I think Ariana Huffington from the Huffington Post once said um, that technology is very good at giving us what we want, but not good at giving us what we need. <laughs> right? And that is, that is what teachers are doing, are giving us what we need, not, not just what we want. You know, of course, everybody wants like free phone calls and free music and things like that, right? So I think that is the answer to, uh, to your question. I think in the future it's going to matter a lot more that you are more human, not less, because that's pretty much the only sort of uh, unique sales point that we have. You know, we, we are human, machines are not. And that will be true for 
at least 30, 40 years when we can have really fancy machines that pretend to be human. But if we want that, that's a different question. So uh, my view is that the commodity work, as I said in my speech, you know, like learning vocabulary, understanding the ground rules, a lot of that stuff can be done with bots and AI. But what does it mean? It's like, look at online dating, for example, right? You can do online dating very successfully so, actually, um, to sift through people and, you know, kind of have a look, right? But in the end, you're going to meet a person and then it's, 0.2 seconds and you know it's been a waste of time, right? Or, or not. Right? And, and that's, that's when it really happens. It doesn't happen by looking through a database. You know? Well, you know, it, it's quite clear that our technology will allow us to do this. Um, like, we're not going to go ourselves to other planets first. We're going to send the AI, you know, the, bo the bots. And, and we are already doing that. I mean, look what happened with Mars in Mars rover last week, right? Um, so I think that's a natural evolution of what we are, but you know, it shouldn't lead to the sort of like, you know, we're going to leave Earth because we messed it up kind of thinking, you know, that that is a very bad approach that Elon sometimes has set forth, you know, like uh, we're, we made a mess and now we have to do a reboot somewhere else, you know, I, I, of course, that's, that's truly science fiction in my view. Uh, the other part about uh, space and those kind of things is that we have probably more pressing issues here. Uh, that we need to uh, invest real money in, like uh, inequality. Right? Uh, and as we've seen in the pandemic, you know, being prepared for emergencies, scientific collaboration. Right? And uh, I think also, I keep telling companies, me and my clients, that uh, we need to invest as much in humanity as we invest in technology. And when I look at what they're doing, they're investing 90% in technology and they think that's kind of like, you know, going to make a lot of money, but it's, it's a complete illusion. Technology is a commodity. Anybody can buy technology. And that is why teaching is, such a, is going to be a great job in the future, because it's not a commodity. <laughs> uh, some very low level of teaching can be a commodity, like you know, teaching you how to say hello or you know, simple. Yes, an app can do that. But if you take a look at what has become a commodity, like you're flying an airplane, um, the plane can fly itself. It can. Completely. So why do we have the pilot? Well, we want a pilot. <laughs> and, and, and the pilot does things other than flying. Are we ever going to get rid of the pilot? It could be that you would one day fly in a, in a metal tube. That is, that's a robot. Yeah, it could be. But that's not anytime soon. I used to be a musician and producer, so I'm very familiar with you know, gadgets and, and toys. Um, and I built myself a little studio last year in the, in the COVID crisis because I was grounded, you know, essentially from going anywhere. So uh, right now I'm using a studio control mixer called the ATM Mini, A-T-E-M Mini. And it's, it's a video mixer where I feed all my cameras and my, my slides go into the mixer. And from the mixer it goes into the camera feed, which is here, here now. So I, so I can easily do stuff like, uh, you know, I can... I can change what it looks like uh, with a clicker or just by, you know, I can fade myself out and things like that. So, and that has taken a long time. So I can have my, you know, I can pull them up on the fly and I can say, okay, uh, you know, take me away. Things like that. It's not complicated. It's just, it uh, took me about a hundred hours to figure this out. 
But if you're interested in, uh, in presenting well, uh, this is crucial, of course, for online teaching, right? You should check out an app that does away with any of the needs of this fancy. I have three computers, two iPads, four cameras. You don't really want that. Uh, so there's an app called MMM, that's M-M-H-M-M. Uh, and if you send me an email, I'll invite you to it because you have to be invited, I think, for testing the premium. And M-M-H-M-M, mmapp.com. Uh, and it basically, it does all that stuff that I do here in a software on your computer. So you can import pictures, you can do fancy backgrounds, you can do edge slide animations, put videos in the back. Yeah, it's very popular. So, and that is pop, yeah, you use it? <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you about teaching online, you know, this is clearly going to be the number one thing, right? Differentiating yourself and what it looks like without being ridiculous, like uh, what you have, the Chinese language teaching site, you know, they're for the kids where they have the little things coming up. And my son is uh, doing some of that stuff, by the way. He's also teaching English language <laughs> online. But uh, I think having this kind of really amazing technology available and being very personal, that's going to win in the end. Right? I mean, I call my, my work now keynote television. Right? It's kind of like television. And that's how you look, have to look at teaching also. It's kind of a, uh, it's television, right? Everybody does this a little bit differently. You know, I try to be entertaining when, when there is a, a good way of doing it or to be funny or something. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's a question of your own style. Um, I think what we're seeing generally, of course, with teaching and learning is that uh, we have a sort of digital Darwinism uh, that can be felt. Basically, if you can be dispensed with, you will be. Right? Uh, and, and that means you have to, you have to um, I think it was, um, I forgot who quoted this, but he said uh, one uh, a computer can replace 50 people, 50 ordinary people, but it cannot replace one extraordinary person. Right? So our mission is to be extraordinary so we can't be replaced and that's actually not that difficult because for the next 20 years computers are going to remain fairly stupid on many issues. Uh, they're becoming smarter, but they're going to be still very stupid compared to a human. That's a tough question. I think, you know, happiness, of course, is a, a one on one side we have hedonism, which is uh, instant happiness, like, you know, I can, I can download a song and I'm very happy I can have the song, or I can talk to my girlfriend for free on, on WhatsApp or, you know, and that is something that, that goes on and that we have to provide sometimes, you know. And, and deeper happiness is about uh, experiences. Yeah, when you all of a sudden it's like a penny drop moment. Yeah, you realize that this is what you want, or this is what's important. When you realize something, when you're talking to somebody, or when you're when you're in a really amazing movie, or when you go to the opera, or whatever, you know, you have this moment where you feel happy, and it's very hard to define what exactly that is. Right? It's a lot easier to define what unhappy is. You know, and that would be, for example, not having self-realization. Uh, not feeling good about yourself, uh, having negative thoughts about the future, and you know. So if you start on that end, you know, avoiding unhappiness is probably an easier way forward. Um, as I like to say, you know, technology doesn't have much to do with happiness. Yeah. Um, you can't download happiness. You can't look for happiness really. Um, you can't find it with some sort of app or. 
you know, as some people are saying, you know, we can, yeah, of course, you, we can we can use technology to sort of fake happiness, right? But it's funny, you know, the the social media phenomenon has shown that initially people were saying, "I'm so happy that we have social media because we can connect," right? And now it turns out that the people who kill themselves the most are the power users of social networks. Right? And and why is that? Because, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Blade Runner twenty forty six, the, the second Blade Runner movie where in the movie the guy sees a hologram of his girlfriend and she's amazing but and then the power goes out and she's gone right and, and he is the loneliest man in the world because he was pursuing an illusion right? and, and so I think it's really important that we realize when we're pursuing an illusion or a supplement or a simulation or when we're actually getting real you know? so yeah, that's my long-winded answer. But, you know, chapter four on happiness, uh, chapter nine on happiness of my book is available on my blog. If you just Google happiness and GERD, you can download the whole chapter from my book for free. It talks about, you know, how we, how we need to pursue happiness in different ways. And, and uh, technology doesn't have much to do with that. It is just basically a tool. I mean, it's funny when you, when you speak about technology in that way, you know, we can use a tool for really bad things or for really good things. Uh, it doesn't make the tool bad, but you know, technology is just a tool that we use for achieving what we want. I think the people themselves are, uh, there are a lot of good people there. Yeah? Um, they are not evil people, not even Zuckerberg or, or you know, the Sergey from Google I, could be considered an evil person. Like, you know, a truly evil person is, is on, a, on a different level. Um, however, uh, the economic system right now is based on uh, just one simple objective, right? That's GDP, it's growth, right? It's just growth, growth, profit, gains. Uh, and the stock markets are measuring everything except for the stuff that could make us happy. Right? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy already said in 1967 that GDP measures everything except for what really matters to humans. <laughs> you know? And uh, that, was, that was, you know, 60 years ago or something. So, so now I think we have to really think about, uh, and this is already starting, what uh, the larger corporations now call the stakeholder economy, not the shareholder economy. So stakeholder means uh, customers, workers, the planet, environment, and, and looking at the world in the larger way. And that's, uh, you know, my next film will be on this called The Good Future. Um, and it's about the need for fundamentally re rebooting the stock market. Because imagine if you're the CEO of a big company and you get measured by performance of growth, that's it. You're going to do anything there is. Uh, I mean, you can do really bad things to, just to grow, you know. Uh, and as long as we don't have an, uh, another measure stick, you know, then we're still going to pursue the wrong thing. So this is what you see right now. There's already a stock market in California called the Long-Term Stock Exchange, LTSE. That's where companies are listing that subscribe to People, Planet, Profit. You know, not just profit. <laughs> uh, and executives don't get paid the bonus without ticking all those boxes. So I, I think this is all going to happen in the next 10 years because it's quite clear if we pursue growth, just growth, we're going to grow and explode. Right? I mean, basically, it's 20 years. Yeah? And, and climate change is only the first one of those clear demarcation lines. You know? uh, unlimited growth doesn't exist in nature. There's no such thing.
This is a vast topic, of course, because China does not have the, uh, the same sort of uh, approach to data privacy and data usage than, than many other countries. But of course, then again, it's a different culture. But it, big data, the idea of data being everywhere, we're just at the beginning. You know, you think that there's a lot of data about us? No. Just wait until our biological data goes online. Right? Our DNA, our genome, our phenotype, our, you know, and it has to because then we can solve cancer. I mean, imagine if all of our DNA was in the cloud and we could compare all of our different issues that we have and we therefore derive a map of what the issues could be, how we could address them and, and you know, geno genomic uh, analysis and sequencing and so on. Uh, yeah, we can, we can do that. But basically what happens with data is that as we're going fundamentally more into the cloud, everything moves into the cloud, right? Your money, your information, your books, your DNA, everything right? and then there's vast advantages of that but then there's issues about control right? uh, and privacy and so basically what people are working on now is a, a global system for data governance you know European Commission is working on that a lot and I think there's an initi initiative in Japan as well and, and all over the world is to be able to have a data uh, identity uh, supervisor you know that says you can have this but you can't have that and so they're free for all that we have now, like anybody's data, you know, we use any which way you want that, that will clearly not work here. Uh, because, yeah, you end up being subject to manipulation like you have in social media. Um, and it's funny, you know, that's not even media, it's essentially an algorithm that is meant for pitching advertising. I think we can already see that augmented reality and virtuality and virtual rooms are everywhere now. So most conferences don't even use Zoom anymore as such. They use a virtual room like Hop-In. You know, it's one of the biggest companies where, where we can have a virtual conference with virtual sideboards and messages and, and, and coffee tables where we meet and we see the LinkedIn pop up on top and things like that. You know? So, I mean, imagine we're, we're only at the very... This is already pretty cool compared to what we used to have, like Skype or so, right? Um, but uh, we're going to go into a future of where that's going to become literally a representation of, uh, of our lives around us. Right? Uh, and that's going to be very powerful. Um, at the same time, again, it's a little bit like you can, you can simulate things there and you can, you can uh, kick things off and it can be a real gain because you don't have to spend time traveling or expenses of going places. Right? But the human relationship is not so much about just the screen and the data and the, uh, you know, it's much more complex than that. Right? Uh, and so a hybrid, uh, hybrid structures will be the future, clearly. So uh, if you're looking to do 10 conferences in uh, you know, a month, then it will be too costly to go places. Uh, you do those online and we will do them in like holograms. Right? Just give it five years, I'm going to be with you right here in the room. Uh, and and it, I'll, I'll wear some smart glasses, you know, uh, and, and we'll be like Tom Cruise in Minority Report, you know, diving into the data, pulling out, and that will be available for free. I mean, that would be a boon for teachers, can you imagine? Right? Um, and then on the other hand, uh, it reminds me of the story where, where uh, my son was very interested in, um, in uh, India, and uh, he watched like, I don't know, 500 hours on YouTube. 
But then when he actually went to India, he sent me a message from the night market saying, I learned more on the night market in Mumbai in 0.4 seconds than 500 hours on YouTube. And why is that? Well, it's, it's clear, you know, it's, one is just a sort of a data-driven approach, right? So clearly the hybrid way is the way forward, you know, because what happens between people is not easily translated into a digital stream. Uh, that's why online learning is such a, a dual-sided affair. You know, you can, you can kick things off in so many interesting ways, but in the end, real learning happens between people and also in an in a often subconscious way. Right? Um, and you know, I think it's, um, it's obvious when we look at the, the results of, you know, uh, for example, MIT is publishing all of the courses online for free. You can study at MIT for free remotely. Right? And why do people still go to MIT and spend $60,000 a year? Well, because everything that is happening at MIT is going to make your life completely different. Right? And it has nothing to do with the courseware, <laughs> but everything to do with the interface and the, and the experiences. So as to your events, I would say, I would continue digital to create bonds and to keep the information flowing and to make it easy for people to participate and at the same time uh, carefully go into real events again when we can. Uh, but clearly people are going to have different emphasis in the future. They will say they will only go to a real event uh, if it totally beats everything else. Uh, so the bar for a real event is going up. And I, I guarantee you every real event, every real life event will have multiple data streams for digital participants. You know, for example, on side screens or on the mobile. So, so you, can, you can probably participate in three or four different ways. You could be an augmented reality room, you could be the real room, you can watch the, the stream on YouTube. Uh, yeah, more tech, basically. We look at it a little bit like car navigation systems, you know. When, when uh, uh, GPS first came out and car navigation systems, you know, the thing was this big and sit, in the, uh, sit on the passenger chair and you have to be a programmer to use it, right? Uh, and then it got better and better and better. And now I just speak to the car and I say, take me to uh, the grocery store or, or order a Starbucks for me, for me to pick up. And the machine does it, right? And so we've learned how to deal with it. The machine gets better and it's going to be the same here. Um, the learning curve is steep for many of us, you know, when you're a traditional teacher or when you use, you know, it's a steep learning curve. Um, but I always say to my futurist colleagues, you know, that this is a learning curve that, you know, whoever masters it and then comes out the other end will have a lot of uh, benefit from it. This is kind of like saying, you know, that we should focus teaching our kids about data, information and simple knowledge, you know, providing them with, uh, you know, the tools, right? Uh, but of course, the bottom line is all that stuff will be easily available instantly using smart technology. <laughs> so, so the lowest, you know, if you look at the Maslow pyramid, right, going from food and shelter and all the way up to self-realization and wisdom, you know, we don't have to worry about that lower part anymore, really. I mean, if you're going to focus just on providing nuts and bolts and facts, you know, you won't exist because what it really means to teach is to teach everything but that in the end, right? Because the nuts and bolts will be easily conveyed. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, this is kind of like people ask me, you know, what, you know, what is futurism all about? And, you know, uh, what about politics and ethics and values? I say, well, it's the same thing. How can you separate the world from, 
you know, the most important things to humans, which are not, you know, e-commerce or trade or stock markets or, you know, they just look like they are. But the real issues are always going to be about society, about ethics, about values, about understanding each other. About uh, and, and the most important thing, of course, in language is that really what you're not saying is sometimes the most important thing. Right? Or the subtext. Right? Um, so if you only teach people the text, they will never understand the subtext, then, you, then it's like teaching a robot. Um, so it's like, uh, I always say, the more, um, the more that we connect, the more we must figure out how that creates value in what we want to do. Right? Um, and we should not think of ourselves as being, you know, uh, just about efficiency. And so, you know, I think the further we go with this, the more experience you can provide. Because in the end, students will come to you if you provide an experience. Right? And that experience has to be all about personal things and larger things and real things, you know, not about, you know, the price of coffee or something. Right? So, uh, of course, it's not an either-or situation and it depends very much on the culture, you know, and where you are teaching and what people would expect. And so, I tend to think that most topics today that are of interest to discuss, they have a political component. Yeah. Uh, and it's very hard to stay away from that, you know, it's like, at what point do you speak out against Donald Trump? Yeah. Um, I mean, these questions are popping up left and right now, and, and because of the COVID crisis, people are saying, I want, to, I want to hear what really matters. I don't want to hear the other stuff. Yeah. People are much more interested in solutions now. Um, and that's going to that's gonna only increase. I mean, keep in mind, like I said in my speech, the next 10 years will bring more change than the previous 100 years. So whatever you've learned 20 years ago, that is still useful, but we have to reevaluate in the context of what's happening. I think we can be quite assured that technology is going to do everything it can to sort of displace routine work uh, and to make life more efficient, right? Um, but on the other side of that same equation is a uh, simple example. I, I don't know if I showed it in the slides or not, but Amazon, for example, is the master of automation, right? Uh, and technology. And Amazon hired 247,000 people last year. So Amazon is automating everything, but they need more and more people all the time. And why is that? Because there are people that have entirely new jobs. And the same is going to happen here. I think it's basically just a shift up the pyramid. So my view is that if you stay in the lower part of the pyramid, just the nuts and bolts, you know, that will kind of fizzle out. Yeah. Moving up the pyramid, that would be understanding, wisdom, uh, you know, on, on the higher part of, of uh, that's kind of where we're going to go. Right now, of course, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're in deep trouble with tourism, but tourism is kind of like, like, like a hospitality or restaurants or eating. Now, it's inherently human to want to go and to meet and to experience. Uh, we're not going to give up on that. Um, so this is one of the things that we need. You know, yes, it would be more efficient if we watched a YouTube video about India rather than going to India. But, but yeah, it's not, not at all the same thing. So tourism has to, however, switch into sustainable mode. Right? That hasn't happened. There has been lots of abuse on this, like uh, Airbnb, you know, increasing the rents in all of the key places and things like that. 
So uh, tourism has a good chance to reboot now, which is great. More local tourism, more responsible tourism, more sustainable tourism, more personal tourism. And we finally are going to have to pay what it actually costs. Right? This is going to be the important thing about tourism. So if I go to Barcelona to experience the culture in Barcelona and use an Airbnb, I'm going to have to pay a culture tax. Right? Because somehow we have to give back to what we have there. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's going to be a fundamental reboot, but I'm, I'm confident about tourism business because that is inherently what makes us go to places and meet other people, our curiosity, our experiences. Uh, that's, that's not going to go away. We just have to really think about how exactly we do that. And, uh, and what the, for example, I'm a, I'm a great fan of uh, compensation for, you know, the circular economy in tourism, which means that you take things and then you give things back so somebody else can take, right? And that really hasn't happened very much and I think that really needs to happen. Costa Rica is a leader in this, for example, uh, and many other, uh, other places li like, uh, especially in Europe, are, yeah, there's a lot of exportation that goes with tourism. Like, you know, if you go to Venice, I don't know if you've been to Venice, but, you know, Venice has become a Disneyland, essentially, right? And, and people who live in Venice, they are like the props for Disneyland. Yeah. It's, it's been <laughs> an interesting development. It's still a great place to go to, but it's completely like, it's basically run like a, like a show, like a theme park. Right? And so we don't really want that to happen when we, when we, do, when we overdo tourism. Right? It's the same that I was saying earlier, uh, as long as your objective is to make as much money as possible, you will end up in a place where you basically abuse what you have and then you throw it away. Right? And so we have to think broader and put back into the system and reevaluate. For example, I'm a great fan of uh, compulsory carbon tax for flying. Even though I fly a lot, it would be very painful for me and my clients, you know. Well, I haven't, but when I will, you know, it's going to be painful. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, yeah, but, but think about this for a second. If we all paid carbon tax on flying, in some sort of fair way, you know, we would raise trillions of dollars. Uh, only part of that we could use to plant trees, for example. Or, I mean, all of the things that we currently don't have money for. Right? So, yeah, this is a long-winded answer, but I think tourism is a good industry. It just, it just kind of, uh, right now it's been sort of the valley of death, you know, for tourism and hospitality. And we're coming out of that now, and this is a great opportunity for a reset. We're saying, what, what do we really want? Yeah, it's become one of, one of my major topics um, because uh, it took a long time for education to realize what is happening. Uh, and, and now also because of the COVID crisis, uh, people are learning from home and then we're experiencing what is happening and how the world is changing. And all of a sudden the debate is about, you know, you know what does a good MBA look like? Or, you know, what kind of topics should we be studying? And, you know, basically the last... Ten years has always been about saying, well, really our kids should learn science, technology, engineering, and math, right? STEM. They should all be technologically versed, right? Turns out that is not going to be the key to the future, right? Of course we need good technologists and scientists, but really we need better humans. Right? Uh, and so we have to study the humanities. Arts, education, music, sports, uh, you know, philosophy, ethics, uh, 
while at the same time we need to uh, not forget about technology and science, of course. So they have to be kind of on par. But, but to say that the, the, the ticket to the future is science and technology, that's a very narrow approach to what we are actually. Right? Um, so, yeah, and language teaching, of course, fits squarely in the humanities part. So, definitely, I think there's going to be a lot of change there. And, you know, if you're looking at educational institutions and, and the states that run them, there's a deep amount of rethinking there right now. Uh, because, you know, if you look at the, the numbers in the next 10 years, uh, in 10 years, about 50% of jobs internationally will be done remotely in the cloud. You're going to work in the cloud, so to speak, right? Like not in a physical place, like in the way we do now in so many ways already, right? Uh, and, and also 50% of jobs are not even invented yet, the new jobs. Our kids are going to invent their own jobs. As I like to say, culture eats technology for breakfast, right? This is all about culture. Uh, and in Europe, for example, we are primarily humanistic countries, like here in Switzerland. Uh, and so, for example, is Brazil, right? Uh, even though sometimes you wouldn't know it, but uh, America has, of course, humanist fractions and, and, and segments, but generally speaking, uh, America is not as deep-centered on humanism than Europe, right? Um, but that is happening uh, around the world in different pockets like New Zealand, right? uh, where that is making a strong comeback and the performance is outstanding. I mean, New Zealand is one of the happiest countries in the world, right? Um, and so is Denmark, for example. Right? Uh, it's, I think that trend, you can, you can see that happening everywhere, but it's going to all come down to the next 10 years as we're looking at what we want. Yeah? Uh, and Korea, for example, is a very good example for uh, a focus on technology that is now starting to sort of lose its steam as being the only important thing. You know, now, now we're saying, well, technology is great, but you know, what does it, what is it good for? You know, uh, and is it going to be really good for us to use lots of technology so that one day we wake up and we can't actually live without technology? You know, we're like basically becoming technology. And so the bottom line in my book is, and this is also maybe a good wrapper, you know, uh, we should embrace technology, but not become technology. Because when you become technology, you become a commodity, and that is basically game over at that point. You know? So you lose all your unique advantages when you become too much like a machine. I want to thank you very much for tuning into my podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Please do join me on my blog, futurewithgerd.com, subscribe to my YouTube channel at gertube.com, or have a look at my book, techvshuman.com, Technology vs. Humanity on Amazon. Thank you.